I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 11. I want to read the first 19 verses with you. Matthew chapter 11, the first 19 verses. This is the word of God. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see, a reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and (laughs) the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And I want to look in particular at the verses 16 through 19 with you. I want to read them again. 16 through 19, the words of Jesus. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, gathered here in Emmanuel with me this morning, Just to fix the context a little bit for a minute, chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel opens up with John the Baptist being in prison. And while he was there, he experiences some doubt about the Messiah. He he sends his disciples to ask of him, are you the one? Are you the one for whom we have been looking for and waiting for all these years? Or must we continue to look for another? 
And then Jesus confirms that he is indeed the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. And then the disciples return to John to report to him, and Jesus turns to the crowd, and he rebukes them. He explained to them that in John, they had had in their midst the greatest prophet who ever lived, with telling the greatest story ever told, and then he accused the crowd there, he accused the people of the crowd there, of treating John's message with indifference and with apathy. He explained that John, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, had preached the gospel to them, calling them to faith and repentance, but the message had left them cold, indifferent, and unchanged. And Jesus attributes that indifference to their apathy. They just didn't care. As we now continue in this chapter, Jesus will accuse the crowds of still another sin, unbelief. People of God, a question that haunts everyone who witnesses to the gospel and the question that Christ will answer for us this morning is, why is it? Why is it now that men and women will not consider, will not accept the gospel message? We see the indifference of the Pharisees here in this chapter, but we see the same response of men and women today all over the world. It's a well-known fact that although the gospel message still goes out from week to week, the number of those who embrace it is minute. The The masses still scorn, they ridicule, or simply ignore with cold indifference that offer of so great a salvation. Why is that? Well, at the root and at the heart of the problem, says Christ, is unbelief. And it is now to that damning indictment upon humanity that Christ addresses himself here in our text. And so I want to minister God's word this morning using as my theme, Christ defines and exposes unbelief. Christ defines and exposes unbelief. We want to consider from our text, first of all, the unbelief as identified in that little parable. We then will learn of the responsibility of any unbelief. And then finally, we will take comfort in the divine wisdom uh, that, that opens the eyes of unbelief. So Christ defines and exposes unbelief. The unbelief as defined in the parable, the responsibility of any unbelief, and the divine wisdom that opens the eyes of unbelief. May God's spirit accompany us as we listen to God speaking to us this morning. If we were to be standing there among the crowds in Palestine on that day, we would have probably noticed that Jesus has become somewhat frustrated with his audience. He has identified himself to them as the promised Messiah. He has demonstrated to them many signs and wonders as evidence of his divinity. He says, you have seen the blind being made to see. You have been made, you've seen the, the lame being enabled to walk. The lepers are being cleansed and the deaf here. Even the dead are being raised. But it left you unmoved. And the response of the Pharisees was, so what? So what? And we can almost envision Jesus shaking his head as he begins to respond. He is, as as it were, he's, he's almost talking to himself. We can hear him, to what shall I liken this generation In other words, to what can I compare the attitude of you people? What kind of example can I use to demonstrate the folly of the vast majority of the people gathered around me here in this place? 
To what shall I liken this generation? But now we need to understand that when Jesus here speaks of this generation, he's not referring exclusively to the people of his day there in Palestine, no. Rather, when Jesus refers to this generation, he includes all of those who are of like mind, and even all of those even yet today, who, who evidence a similar attitude to those to whom he was now speaking. In other words, in other words we are to understand here that Jesus is instructing all those throughout all of history, even up to today, even up to this morning, who were of a similar mind of the Pharisees. What now, says Christ, what now can I use as an example to demonstrate the foolishness of those who refuse to embrace the gospel? And it is now in that context that Christ gives us the story of the children playing in the marketplace. And these games of the children, according to Jesus, had the same results as is often seen among children today, as any mother will understand and agree. Rather than quiet, contented play, children's games often quickly erupt into disharmony and disagreement, bringing an abrupt end to the friendly play of the kids. One moment we can look out and see the children quietly playing, And suddenly an argument arises and one kid picks up his marbles and angrily goes home and the friendly company of children suddenly stops. And Jesus likens the Jews there with him in Palestine as those children. He tells them of two groups of children playing in the market square. And when one group wanted to act as flute players and make merry, the other group didn't want to dance to the tune of the pipers. And when a shift was made to portray the mourning of a funeral, again, the other group refused to beat upon their breasts in lament. They simply refused to play along. And now commentators disagree as to which group of children was likened to those of the generation in Christ's condemnation. Was it now the first group who was ready to accommodate to the wishes of the others? Or was it the other group who refused to participate at all. Which group now was responsible for the discord and disharmony? Are we now to try to identify Jesus and John in the one group and the Pharisees in the other? If that is the intent of Jesus, then the application of Jesus' words have become somewhat problematic. And and, and consequently, we have disagreement among scholars as to how the parable must be interpreted. It is legitimate to conclude here, however, that whichever group was right, it would be inconceivable for Jesus to compare the seriousness of unbelief to to such a trifling thing as quarreling children. To interpret the parable in that way would leave us unsatisfied. Again, as any mother can tell you, uh, even the most serious of squabbles between children is usually resolved and quickly forgotten and peace and harmony is soon restored between the warring camps and they again will play together. No, so such an application simply does not satisfy. And then in most parables, the desired analogy can be quickly made. After all, for those who believe, those who have faith, that was the purpose of Christ's teaching in parables in the first place. The interpretation and the application is usually obvious and evident. For instance, in the story of the prodigal son, we immediately identify the father as being analogous of God the father and the prodigal son 
is given as an example of the penitent sinner. However, in this parable, the analogy is not so easily made, and it would appear that a different interpretation of the parable needs to be sought. When reading this parable, we need to to examine, interpret, and apply it in the context of the entire truth being taught here by Christ in all of this chapter. In all of this chapter, Matthew chapter 11, actually this, I may share with you that this sermon is part of a series and I pray that it works well on its own, but in all of this chapter, Christ is pointing his accusing finger at the Pharisees and he's now identifying their attitude as being sinful unbelief. And the matter is being made all the more serious in that they have already rejected the greatest prophet, John, or the great prophet, John, and now also the greatest prophet, Jesus. And when we understand the parable in that context, then the meaning becomes clear to us. Also, our parable becomes uh, further, uh, to further clarity in the verses immediately following. We read in verses 18 and 19 of our text, For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came, eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton, a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Walk with me, follow with me now as we examine the parable in the light of those verses of Scripture, of the words of our Lord. You see, Jesus used the example of children's play to show how frivolously the people treated the most momentous question of life. If you read the entire chapter, you will know that it was precisely the question of, art thou the Christ? Are you the Christ that we've been waiting for all these years? That, That question brought on this entire confrontation. In the opening verses of the chapter, John wanted confirmation. He understood that the question encompassed the things of life and death, of heaven and hell. And for him, the question, it was crucial. But but, but the masses scorned and ridiculed this all-important question, and they rejected him who stood at the center of the answer. In that context now, Jesus here uses this parable to teach the Pharisees that their attitude to John and to Jesus was like that of those little children who in fickleness first wanted to make merry and then wanted to play a game of mourning and when they could not agree upon which game then the fun stopped and each side accused and resented the other blaming each other that they could not play and have a good time. Jesus said it is to that kind of childishness That kind of childishness that I would compare those of you who are offended by the Christ. Follow carefully with me as we try to work this out together. In the verses 7 through 9 of this chapter, we learn that the Pharisees had once revered John the Baptist. He left a remarkable impression upon them, but the fun was soon over. Because, you see, his message began to make claims on their life and their lifestyle, And that was unacceptable to them. And then on his heels came Christ himself. And again, they were initially impressed. But again, they find fault and they reject him. The Jews of our text, they found fault with every preacher and prophet sent by God. First came John the Baptist preaching repentance. The Jews Jews saw him, a harsh, 
stern, an austere man, a man who withdrew himself from society and lived an aesthetic life, a hermit. Did that satisfy the Jews? No, they found fault with him. And they said, this man, this man is the devil. He's demon-possessed. He's a strange eccentric. His diet of locust and honey and his, his, his hermit lifestyle, his strange clothes and his stern mannerism clearly indicates this man, this man is a lunatic. Do not believe him. These were the ones who did violence to the kingdom. They rejected the messenger and the message. But then comes Jesus, the very Son of God, preaching the gospel, living as other men had lived, and having none of John's particular peculiar eccentricities, but also this did not satisfy the Jews. Listen to their objection now. Behold, a glutton, a wine-bibber, a drunkard, a friend of publicans and sinners. You see, says Jesus, You see, says Jesus, you are as hard to please as those foolish children in the marketplace. You criticize John because of his stern demeanor and his austere lifestyle. But I followed him as the exact opposite. And you rejected me and accused me of being a glutton, a drinker, and far too popular with the people. You Pharisees, says Jesus, you are like the fickle children of the marketplace. Your games are over. The novelty is gone. And both Jesus and John leave you unaffected and bored. Jesus' scathing rebuke identified their apathetic sin for what it really was. Unbelief. And my dear people of God, we need to examine this parable in the context of our own world. We need to bring it home. We need to bring the teaching of our Lord home to ourselves. The Bible is explicitly clear in teaching that the masses of people who perish eternally do so because of unbelief, and no one will deny that. But but a strange twist has been added to that biblical teaching, a shift which has had a devastating effect in our society, our culture in general, and a shift that is now also having impact on much of contemporary evangelical Christianity. What has happened, you see, is that Satan has convinced our culture that when men and women make a mess of their lives, the fault lies not with them. No, 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 rather it is their environment that has shaped these people. For instance, criminals are criminals not because of their own sinful conduct. No, it's because of their broken home or their abusive alcoholic father or their promiscuous mother or or missed opportunities that, that has given birth to this monster. He attended the wrong school. He was surrounded by the wrong friends. Do you see the master stroke of Satan in that approach, people of God. Satan has convinced us that the, that the blame needs to be shifted away from personal responsibility and consequently criminals are no longer punished for their crime. No, they need to be rehabilitated because it's really not their fault. My dear people of God, do not be deceived. Satan has worked this deception into the heart of much of contemporary Christianity. Most churches, tragically, even some, uh, some evangelical churches have become convinced that although people are indeed perishing in unbelief, their unbelieving condition is a result 
of simply not having been given the proper information. Had they been properly instructed, they would have surely been rescued from destruction. In other words, in other words, although men and women are indeed being lost for eternity, it's not their fault. On the sincere but ill-informed Christian and on the church in particular then is laid a tremendous burden of guilt in their failure to evangelize faithfully or vigorously and effectively. People are being lost, we're told. People are being lost, we're told, because we're not doing our job as Christians. My dear precious saints of God, we need to walk carefully here for a moment. I do not wish to be misunderstood. I'm not suggesting that we need to be, not be concerned about the eternal destination of millions of billions of people but, but who will perish in unbelief. No, the exact opposite is true. It is the clear and convincing testimony of Scripture that all of those who have experienced the forgiving grace of God in Jesus Christ must be and will be consumed by a desire to witness to the good news of a salvation freely given. It will, out of the necessity of the case, be a burning desire for the Christian to work for the salvation of others in spreading the good news of the gospel. But, 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 and this needs to be understood by us, Although Satan would have us believe that millions are perishing because they simply have not been told. The Bible wants us to know that millions will perish in spite of having been told. Walk with me again. In North America, with all of the methods of modern communication, with what is now called the information and communication highways, with evangelists in most communities, with church buildings on virtually every street corner, with televisions, radios, and internets in every home. Millions of men and women, the masses, the vast majority, according to the polls, will perish in unbelief. They will die now and forever. But people of God, they will die not because they haven't heard, They will perish in unbelief because they have refused to believe what they have heard. We need to be clear on that. And now the parable comes into focus for us. We have played the flute and you would not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. You heard the message of John. A lunatic, you said. You saw the miracles of Christ. Unbelievable, you said. We presented the gospel this way and that way, and you rejected it in unbelief. Still today, there are millions of people in the world who demonstrate the exact same attitude as did the Jews of our text. And Jesus points to the sin of unbelief and identifies it as a refusal to accept the message despite the earnest attempts of the messenger. And people of God, the same is still true today. Tell men and women of salvation by grace, and they cry out against a doctrine of free grace as making men careless and profane. Tell them of the holiness required, and at once they respond that we are too strict, too, pre- too precise, too legalistic. Are we cheerful Christians? We're being accused of being frivolous. Are we serious Christians? We're called too gloomy and and too too sour. Do we distance ourselves from certain forms of worldly entertainment? They denounce us as being puritanical, antiquated, and old-fashioned. Do we go out into the world? They sneer that they see no difference between us and the world. See, here, people of God, the same response 
as the Jews of our text. Did I send John? You said he was an eccentric, possessed of a demon. Did I send the very son of God? You branded him a glutton, a wine-bibber, a friend of the publicans. Listen with me now again to the word of God here in our text. I played the flute, and you would not dance. I mourned you, you would not lament. I appealed to you over and over and over again, and you would not come. How many times did I not try to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not come that you might have salvation. I sent you John, who neither ate nor drank, and you rejected him as demon-possessed. I then sent Christ, my very son, who ate and drank, and you denounced him as a glutton and a drinker. People of God, Jesus here, in the words of the parable, places the responsibility of the eternal condemnation of men and women on the shoulders of whom it properly belongs. He places it on the shoulders of men and women who have heard, who have been warned, but who refuse to believe. That's the language of the Bible. Stand your ground and do not let Satan's deception of the world distort that biblical truth, regardless of what modern psychology wants us to know. But another thought needs to be captured by us as well in this context. In 1 Corinthians 12, 6 we read, And there are adversities of activities, but it is all the same God who works in all men. And in that context we need to take comfort in the knowledge that all of us who labor for the salvation of souls, especially those of us who are called by God and ordained by the church as ministers of the word, but also each and every believer is this comfort in the knowledge that God bestows to each of us certain yet different gifts and talents. And these talents then are to be used by us for God's glory, for the salvation of souls. But the gifts and the talents are different in accordance with the measure of God. Capture this with me. In the task of witnessing and preaching, there are a diversity of gifts. The ability and the genius of one falls one way and for the other it falls in another way. Some preachers are sons of thunder. Others are Barnabases, sons of consolation. But according to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, one and the same spirit works these things. And so therefore we ought not to praise one talent over against another. We ought not to distinguish ministers by their gifts or perceived lack of them. No, rather we need to see that God has given different talents to different preachers of the gospel as part of his working to reach a diversity of people, people with widely differing understandings or emotions. However, having understood that, then we need to know now also see that the various methods that God uses in these differing talents are for the most part ineffectual. That's also what we see here in the words of Christ in the parable. We have piped and you have not danced. We've lamented, you would not mourn. In other words, the hearts of men and women have not been affected by one method or another. 
think with me here for a moment, people of God. If the gospel is presented by, its, by various men in its various forms with various gifts and talents, and yet the people will not be bound by laws, if people will not be invited by promises, if people will not be frightened by threatenings, if people will not be awakened by the greatest things, if they will not be allured by the sweetest things, nor startled by the most terrible things, if people will not listen to the voice of God in the scriptures, what more then can be done? Oh, people of God, do not be discouraged when your efforts to convince others of the need of the Christ fail. Mourn for the lost soul, but be comforted that the work of John the Baptist and the preaching of our Lord Christ himself met with precisely the same opposition and response. Unbelief is a consequence of sin. It's not simply a question of not yet having been presented all of the information in the appropriate conducive manner. Unbelief is a condition. It is a condition of the sinful fallen heart of fallen man. It is a condition that blinds people to the glorious nature of the gospel truth. It blinds people to their greatest need. That's what Christ is teaching us here in our text. It was unbelief that blinded the Jews to the person of John the Baptist and to the person of Jesus Christ. It was unbelief that caused them to refuse to dance to the piper. The last prophet, the greatest prophet sent by God to prepare the way for the Christ and the masses rejected his message. They refused to repent. They ridiculed him as a religious fanatic, demon-possessed. But the same sin of unbelief blinded the Jews not only to Jesus and John, but it closed their hearts and minds to the greatest story ever told. They rejected the messengers and the message in blind unbelief. John proclaimed the message, repent for the kingdom is at hand. He warns the Jews of his day, flee from the wrath of God for the judgment is near already now. The axe is laid at the foot of the tree. And the Jews in turn wanted him to be dancing and piping. But the message of the gospel is that the first thing necessary to know about is sin. That's the message John and Jesus brought to the Jews of their day. And the message has not changed also today. The world needs to know that in order to find the Christ of God, men and women, first of all, need to understand that they need to be saved from their sin. If you don't know of your sin, why would you look for a savior? It's an integral part of the gospel message. And that part, a recognition of personal or corporate sin, is unacceptable to modern man. People of God, marvel with me now for a moment in amazement as we ponder the wisdom, the divine wisdom here captured in the final words of the text. But wisdom is justified by her children. Yes, we weep and we mourn in the knowledge that there are masses of people with whom we live and work who will ultimately perish in unbelief and be lost for eternity. We work for and plead with them to believe the gospel message. We pray that God will use us as instruments in his hand to that end, to teach men and women of their great need of the Christ. And we ought to weep genuine tears of sorrow for those who refuse to, in unbelief to embrace the Christ. However, we need to also weep tears of joy and thanksgiving in the knowledge that there are numbers of people 
numbers as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as grains of sand on the seashore who have believed and will continue to believe the message and who have embraced the messenger. Our text concludes with the words, wisdom is justified by her children. In other words, the wisdom of God was justified by the children of God, or if you will, by those to whom the Lord has granted the wisdom to become sons and daughters of God. Those people stormed into the kingdom, we read earlier in the chapter. To such people was granted the eyes of faith to see and to believe the message of the, of the Baptist. They recognized the divine wisdom in the words and, the, and in the work of Jesus Christ. And such people, they recognized the Christ. They embraced him. The wisdom of John the Baptist when he insisted on repentance and the wisdom of Jesus when he held out the hope of salvation even to those who would reject it in unbelief was shown to be fully justified by what it accomplished in the hearts and lives of those who by sovereign grace were enabled to give the proper response to both of these preachers. Wisdom's children are those who were wise enough to take to heart the message of John and Jesus. Between John and Jesus, there was this similarity. Both proclaimed the gospel. And still between John and Jesus was also a distinct contrast. And that contrast was not in dancing or mourning. No, the contrast needs to be seen in that while John proclaimed the good news, Jesus came into the world that there may be good news to proclaim. Our text earlier spoke of lamenting and dancing. And the world looks at that and says, look, a discrepancy, a contradiction. There's a contradiction in this gospel, you tell me. How can it be both dancing and mourning? How can the good news contain both tears of sorrow and tears of joy? My dear precious people of God gathered here in Emmanuel, here we have stumbled on one of the greatest truths of the two parts of the glorious gospel. The plain truth is that when the gospel is presented to the heart and the mind of one prepared by the wisdom of God, The first response is a recognition of sin. Such a man will immediately be moved to tears of sorrow for his years of offending God. And even then, all through his life, even after embracing the cross, he will daily mourn his sin. But his tears of sorrow will mingle and blend with his tears of untold and unfathomable joy in the knowledge that he is not his own, but he belongs now and forever to his faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The world wants us to know that the gospel message is full of contradictions. How can you say repent and rejoice? How can you ask of me to dance and lament? That's an unacceptable contradiction. Not so, says our text. Not so, says Jesus. In order order to come to Christ, the first thing is to be convicted of our sin. One who has not mourned over personal and or corporate sin has not even begun to understand Christianity. But once a penitent child has seen and understood his sin in the light of the cross and of the holiness of God and grieves over his sin, then immediately and at the same time, the Spirit of God descends upon him and breathes peace. He will convince you 
of the forgiveness of your sin in the blood of the Lamb. He will call upon you to dance in the joy of the Lord. In fact, he will dance with you. He will assure you that you are not only a forgiven sinner, but that you are his precious, precious child. And he will tell you through the tears of joy and sorrow that there is life beyond the grave and that you are going to dance with him throughout all of eternity. May it be so for each of us and our children. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Father, what a glorious gospel we heard again this morning. And our hearts are burdened and saddened that there are so many people, Father, who close their ears and their eyes and their hearts and their minds to that gospel message. We pray, Father, use us as instruments in your hand to try to reach those with whom we come in contact, those we work with, those who cross our path, even our own family members, sometimes our children. Father, we pray, speak to me that I may speak in living echoes of thy tone. As thou hast sought, so let me seek thine erring children lost and lone. Oh, use me, Lord, use even me, just as thou wilt and when and where, until thy blessed face I see thy rest, thy glory.